0: this is all theater it's all just political theater
1: political theater political theater
0: pure political theater
1: theater
2: political theater
3: the,
1: the nefarious significant and protracted political, political 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 theater for political theater's sake
2: democrats are officially in charge this is what unites the country right here make it
0: you have to go after the established order
3: from Washington, this is Political
1: Theater. Hi, everybody. I'm Kat's Hey, it's Palmieri. Alex is on. Welcome <laughs> to the circus, <laughs> Thank you. Welcome,
3: and here's a line I've wanted to say for a long time. Political theater meets the circus. We're thrilled to be joined by John Halman and Jennifer Palmieri to the hosts of Showtime's political documentary series. In Polite Company, the circus describes itself as inside the greatest political show on earth. In other promos... It's capturing a big, giant, chaotic, nightmarish stew. <laughs> we're pretty down with that. We like to ask what the F is happening in politics ourselves, and we're trying to pull back the curtain on some of the stunts, antics, and motivations here in Washington. Uh, but in our wildest dreams of how nutty politics can get, did we imagine covering politics in the way we've seen the last few months? John, Jennifer, what do you think? <laughs>
2: Me? Um, no, I did not. Not in my, you know, and I, I worked on the Clinton campaign and I imagined the Trump presidency. Um, um, And I did not imagine, um, I imagined that he might get impeached and be removed from office. I did not imagine, what I didn't imagine was a situation where hundreds of Republican elected officials would join him in trying to Overthrow an election, you know. I, I didn't. I didn't imagine that it would. That his sort of approach would permeate the Republican Party, and that's what is of you know that's like what's of, of the of the gravest concern. But did not see this one coming.
1: I would say it's funny. Jen, Jen and I have been uh, you know for having various discussions about the apocalyptic nature of politics for a while, and she had a very vivid imagination about what would happen if Donald Trump became president. So she sketched out a lot of nightmare scenarios like during the Clinton campaign. And then in the immediate aftermath, and she was always like democracy died on, on election day in November, 2016. And I was always kind of like, well, it's bad, but you know, it can't be. But even with all of her, I was like, it's bad, but it won't be that bad. And as, as florid as her imagination was, she didn't imagine anything this bad. I can attest to that. That's true. She did not sketch her most apocalyptic visions were not as apocalyptic as what's actually happening. And, um, I, I agree it's like you know there's no it's a, it's a it tests the limits of one's abilities to 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 imagine uh to to have imagined how terrible it was because I don't think that you know um, I mean literally the thing that happened on January sixth and we were here um you know uh, our first week back for this run of the circus, which was going to be eight episodes that were gonna take up most of January and February so we were we had we had come back to shoot Georgia the special uh, the special elections and Jen had and Alex were down in in Georgia for those two elections and Mark McKinnon and I were here um, so it was our first week back right and it was going to be a big deal because those elections seemed like a big deal and the electoral college certification we thought it was going to be a big deal and there was going to be political theater to use your to use your words um, uh, a plenty on the sixth but. If, if, again, all the horrible things that happened over the last four years—you still, even then, the, the the you could not have conjured a specter of thousands of Trump supporters actually storming and taking the Capitol and people ending up dead. I just think you know, you—I mean, anybody who claims they predicted that is 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 uh is is lying about their their imaginative capacity. I just you know, I, I we sat there watching it. I, again, I feel like I'm at the point where I thought like Trump was capable of anything, and they at the moment could go off the rails in a variety of ways. But as you watched it happen, and I was up there on the Capitol within an hour or so of when they breached the the the, the doors and we're in, you know, we, I walked around there mostly just kind of. Like thinking, am I tripping? Like, is this not? Is, I can't actually kind of comprehend what I'm <laughs> yeah. what I'm witnessing here, having right. been right. In and around Washington on Capitol Hill since 1987. When I first got out of college, I worked in the Rayburn building. And I don't know, just it's still mind blowing. And watching the video this week, as these uh, Democratic impeachment managers put it up, it just brings it back. And you sit there still, even as you watch it on video, you still are kind of like, I can't really believe that this actually happened.
3: I, I actually, that, that brings up a, a, a kind of a thought I had as, as I was watching that video. You know, I, I wasn't really prepared for it. Um, I mean, obviously the trial is going to be a focus of your, probably your upcoming episode on Sunday, Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, I mean, how, how do you approach this topic, you know, with like these raw emotions and the violence? Um, you know, and and make it like watchable but not exploitative. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. And and I mean, at this point, you know, with this podcast, we don't have to worry about images. I mean, what's going through your mind as you're preparing this episode?
2: I'm in. I feel like you have. I mean, John's been doing. You know, John created the show. He's been doing. I'm. I'm still. What's interesting to me about this process is learning how you do exactly that, Jason. Right. I mean, it's. I feel like. I mean, John should address this specifically. But I. I feel like what the show tries to do is that we have a minute, right? We got like a little. We have a little bit of time than the people that cover this minute to minute do to tell to try to lift the story up with some maybe some sort of historical perspective and also kind of throwing forward to where it may go um, that you can't do if you're if you're writing you know if you're in print or, or or cable news and that's how I think about it. But John, say how it actually happens.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I just think there's too, I mean, to,
1: just to answer the question directly. I just think I, I you know. Is there a, a way in which, in which some media outlet could be exploitive about this? I, I guess I mean I could probably spin a scenario for that, but I don't think you can. I think it's really important that people that people confront these images, right? I don't think yeah. you can go too far. I think it's right that the house managers left the profanity in the video last night. You know, that they put on yesterday, I should say. I think it's. I think people. Should be forced to watch this stuff and be and can be confronted with it in all of its garishness. Um, and I don't think there's anything exploitive about it. I think people are are approaching this at least we we certainly are. you know, we uh, you know have have and I think generally media has been this way. I wouldn't put a set us apart. I think people understand the gravity of this and and I think I've not so far seen, and i and that's not to say it doesn't exist, but I've not seen a mainstream media organization that's used this video in a way that struck me as exploitive. I think everybody has been has been putting this stuff forward in a way with a, with a seriousness about it they've talked about it in a serious tone they've they've they continue to present it in what i think of as the proper way which is to say like you know this should not be should not be swept under the rug it shouldn't be prettified it shouldn't be soft-sold it shouldn't right. be glossed up in some way this is a thing that you know to grapple with the full implications of it and and i don't know what will happen going forward but the only way that that there's only the only chance that we have for it never to happen again is if people are forced to face it in all of its ugliness and so uh, i i have not seen anything thus far that i've thought has been like gone over the line and done anything that i thought was like you know sort of like you know riot porn I, that's not been a problem that i've encountered yet and it's certainly on our program we bring a seriousness to everything we do that i it's never there's never anything, anything we've done that's been close to the line where I've been worried about it, but I can imagine. I guess there might be something, but it hasn't come up.
3: Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because I mean, like in in our newsroom uh, at, at roll call, you know, I'm I'm like known as the pro profanity guy. Um, <laughs> you know, going back to when Dick Cheney told Pat Leahy to go f himself, yeah. you know, on yeah. on the Senate floor, I was I was you know I was very much like we have to spell it out. I mean, it happened on the floor. <laughs> Fuck yeah, bro. Um, it, <laughs> and uh, and. But it's also, it is this moment where I, I mean, and part of it, you know, is just covering it and, and having, um, you know, my team up there in the chamber when people broke in was it just when, when Jamie Raskin, we've got this clip uh, of him talking the the first day of, um, um, of arguments. And he recounts this thing of, you know, his daughter being afraid to ever be there again.
0: And all around me, people were calling their wives and their husbands, their loved ones, to say goodbye. Members of Congress, in the House anyway, were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape the violence. Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us, and we were told to put our gas masks on. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram the most haunting sound i ever heard and i will never forget it my chief of staff julie tagan was with tabith and hank locked and barricaded in that office the kids hiding under the desk placing what they thought were their final texts and whispered phone calls to say their goodbyes they thought they were going to die
3: just the vulnerability is I mean, it's, it's almost like kind of heartbreaking. And I, you know, I consider myself a fairly cynical or realistic or hard to scare person. And it just feels really like I, I almost feel too close to it, but we have to cover it. <laughs> you know, it's this weird balance. I, I don't know what, I don't know. I guess we're going to make it up as we go along. Right.
2: It certainly is unchartered. Right. I mean that, um, and everyone is, I mean, I, I think that you could feel that with Congress too, that they they have been affected personally, their lives were personally threatened, but they're trying to make the effort to make it not about themselves, right? To make it about a larger, um, you know, a larger uh, principle. Um, but wow, that day could have gone the other way. I was in Atlanta on the 6th because um, we, Alex and, that's Jonathan, Alex and I went down to cover uh, the Georgia Senate run- runoffs. And um that seemed like a big victory for little D democracy. Right. And then I saw what was happening and I had that, you know this like sick feeling immediately. I thought, cause I saw, I saw rioters in the, in the Senate chamber immediately. I thought, where's Cory Booker and where's Kamala Harris. Right. Like where, you know, that was like, my mind went immediately to black senators being particularly vulnerable and like thinking, is this the day that we're going to lose, you know, that they're, you know, we're gonna lose United States senators. They're gonna be killed. Um
3: and especially with nooses, you know, being part of like the, you know, the the equipment, Confederate flags, this kind of stuff. I mean, one one thing I'm I'm curious too about just your personal experience and, and professional life. I mean, you worked for Barack Obama mm-hmm. in the White House, you worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, these are two people who, you know, really attracted a lot of like vile rhetoric and threats and and, and so forth, um, and uh, you know I was kind of struck by your interview with Nikema Williams, the freshman Democrat from from Georgia, who was just elected.
2: I think the biggest thing that we can take away is that not making this about partisanship and hoping that they realize that this is about this is about our national security. This is about the institution of the United States Congress and coming into that body every day, serving the people of this country, we all deserve to feel safe. And I might not agree with you on a vote, but that shouldn't make you feel unsafe.
3: And just the kind of the fear, you know, in her voice, but also sort of the bravery, like, did you ever anticipate, like, you know, you can kind of understand the hate directed at the first black president or at Hillary Clinton. Right. Not not understand it, but you you get where it comes from. But like just regular rank and file members of Congress, did you ever anticipate in your time that you would see like that, that same sort of like hateful, violent rhetoric directed at like a freshman Democrat from Georgia?
2: <laughs> like- no, and when I lived through that with Obama and Hillary in real time, with Obama it felt like. Okay, you know, I worked for Bill Clinton too. Presidents come under threat. Um, and then you it, it got tor- you know, you felt you felt you felt it get torqued up under Obama from the Tea Party on. You knew about the some of the personal threats, you knew that his security was more than what you know, when I worked for President Clinton, what it was. And then with Hillary, honestly, is where I felt like it started to change. I felt like I really thought and feared that there would be violence before the election. Um and that didn't happen, but uh it, you know, I did feel like we were on a bad trajectory. So when I when I talk to somebody like Nikima Williams, what, what I want to lift out of that is this isn't just a you know relatively young new member of Congress going to work. Um, her life is in danger and she's part of this through line, you know, starting from you know, hundreds of years ago, but more recently 60, 50 years ago, she's in John Lewis's seat. Um, her great aunt was the first woman integrated at the University of Alabama 65 years ago um, this month. Uh, so to try to show that this, you know, not only are they under that kind of threat, but, but to try to put in some kind of context that, you know, her struggle is this, is, is this, this struggle that's been you know going on for centuries.
3: John, uh, you had this interview with. Well, you've had several interviews with Steve Bannon. Uh, the pleasure of of talking to uh, Steve Bannon over the over the years, but but yeah. the one in October um, where you're going through the scenarios with him post election, and he predicts a firestorm on January sixth.
1: Every vote yeah. gets certified. Yeah, should sure count. But they're going to try to overturn this election with uncertified votes. It's going to be crazy lawsuits on naked ballots, on every different aspect of it. Those counting rooms are going to be knife fights. With this scale of votes, we'll go into January, and that's when the firestorm starts.
3: Like, when do you, if you have rewatched that, I mean, do you just get, like, chilly when you see that, like, interview with Bannon?
1: Uh, I haven't rewatched really it, but I I have a very pretty pretty vivid memory of it. And he talks about it all the time um, because you know on his on his podcast on that war room pandemic thing that he does, he constantly cites it um, because he he more you know he was he, he yes he predicted the firestorm, but he also kind of laid out. And we I talked to him you know I was I was recording with him during the first debate, first presidential debate. We went back to the place where Hillary Clinton and and Trump had had the first presidential debate in 2016. So we were in, in the whole room at Hofstra University in in Long Island. And, and kind of reliving what it was like for him and Trump in that first debate with Hillary Clinton and then watching the debate with, with with Trump and Biden, right? And so we had a long conversation and some decent chunk of it. We probably talked for a half an hour about this topic. So there's a lot that didn't end up in the episode. But he was, you know, you know, was very much in Trump's ear at that point and, and was very encouraging the thing that Trump is now being, uh, he's on trial for, which was, you know, let, let's lay the tracks down for claiming this election will be stolen. He was pretty cynical about it, you know, and his, and his outlook was kind of like, you know, we control the courts, we Republicans, Trump appointees, we control the courts, we control the state legislatures. We will have, you know, advantageous position of power if Trump loses to make this claim. And he would, you know, have some gloss of, you know, there's going to be all kinds of uncertified ballots that are going to be there. He, he was kind of pretending that there was some actual legitimacy to these claims, but he wasn't presenting very hard. It was more just like he was forecasting what we saw, which was laying down the groundwork for what would be a naked power grab to try to steal the election. Um, and, you know, his he didn't use the phrase stop the steal, but that was the framing. We will say we're going to try to stop this election from being stolen by all these Democrats who have eased all these restrictions on mail-in voting. That's going to let there be a lot of fraud. And because we have all these state legislatures and we have all these judges, we will be able to pull this off. Now he thought that they would be able to. At one point, he thought that they would be able to get that they would where the point of conflict would be in the electoral college certifications in mid December, but but that that would still play out over the course of the following month. But that you would have rival slates of electoral of electors that would come. That by the time we got to January sixth it was clear that they had lost all of that, right? The Trump judges had turned on them, right. you know, all of the courts had, had had made it. So Trump came into January 6th in a much more disadvantageous position than Bannon forecast. But to your point, he's texting me, you know, uh, you know, kind of, and, and on his podcast, kind of claiming this prophetic position uh, from that interview. And so even though I haven't rewatched it, I'm very familiar with the fact that, that Steve, you know, and I think it wasn't, a, it wasn't, he wasn't being prophetic. The reason he knew that it was going to happen was because he was in the middle of it. You know, it was Bannon and Giuliani were in Trump's ear starting in September, October, very much consciously crafting this strategy. And so he was predicting a thing that he was engineering at the same time. Um... And it's—I mean, it's—I'll say. I mean, I've interviewed Steve uh, in some very contentious interviews over the years. which just the way that I think this should be with someone like Steve Bannon. I would not have him back on the air now, given I think that he's gone way too far when he suggested putting uh, officials that should, that should have their heads on pikes. The thing that got him deplatformed, I think, appropriately, by Twitter and other places. But you know, in the earlier interviews, they were always contentious, but they were always interesting. And part of the reason why it was worth doing was because he was even when he was out of trump's favor and not in the white house officially he was always in trump's ear and always had a lot of uh, had a lot of influence and and so uh that one though will stick with me given the events now what actually happened that's one that is i think will be worth uh would be worth someone going back to and looking at just because there's so much in it that unfolded in the way that it did so i
3: mean this this doesn't seem like you know we're I mean, we are turning corners. We've got a trial going on. I mean, there is going to be some sort of resolution to it one way or another. But domestic extremism, terrorism, you know, security issues and so forth, this is going to be part of the landscape for a little while. Um, and, you know, politics is getting uh, – t- seems to be taking a violent turn, as it as it does at, at times. Um I, I mean, I feel like a, an obligation to keep going. Like, we got through the worst, most terrible thing. You know, the nightmarish stew, in your words, uh, John. Like, we we got through this terrible part of, of history in life. And I feel kind of an obligation myself to keep going because we made it. Um, but how do, how do you think, how, how are we going to do this without going nuts? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know. If, I don't know if, I, we don't. We don't get a choice about that, right? Nobody asks our nobody. Nobody asks for our, our permission to make things crazy. Um, I feel like uh,
3: I, I'm not meaning to turn this into group therapy, but I just I'm curious what what your coping mechanisms all are. <laughs> I might start. I mean, to steal I don't know them, that this is know. a
2: coping mechanism. It's just I'm just terrified, Jason. Like I don't think. I'm not sure that we made it through the worst. I feel like we got a second chance is what I feel like democracy, you know, and I'm trying, I'm not trying to be partisan here. I'm talking about democracy with a little D, but I feel like democracy got a second chance when I saw the inauguration. And, and um, I was glad that Pence was on that stage because It was a reminder that as comforting as it was to see George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and everyone being friendly and um, not partisan, that the Trump presidency did happen. You know, Pence was there to sort of memorialize that. Um, And I feel like we got a second chance. And what really worries me is what you see happening at state Republican Party levels. Right. Like. You know, Liz Cheney got censured by by her uh, party, the Senate Majority Leader in Michigan, who's a very conservative guy that's gone to great lengths to stop Gretchen Whitmer from um, uh, from some of the COVID restrictions that she's tried to do, is now denying um, that uh, that there was Trump people actually at the Capitol. He's, he's saying that it was rigged uh, because. He is uh, in danger of being censured by a local Republican Party for not being tough enough on Gretchen Whitmer. There are, from Georgia to Arizona to Texas, state capitals all over the country are considering more legislation to make it harder for people to vote. In um, Georgia, which you know had the huge uh, mail-in and early vote, they're trying to get the Republicans there are trying to get rid of that now in this in this legislative session. And so I feel like in terms of democracy surviving and not becoming a country where the minority can rule as hundred, you know, hundred plus uh, Republican members of Congress voted to overturn the certification of the electoral college. You know, I feel like that's the next big fight. And I feel, you know, we have a, a, my crew, we, we say WAPA, what a time to be alive. Um, uh, about this time, but it feels like a privilege to be able to be, you know, part of trying to understand it. Uh, but we don't get a choice about how hard it is. It's scary.
1: I don't think no. that the um, that it's at all. And I, I don't. I'm not generally a, 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 like an instinctively pessimistic person, but um, I'm also, I think, pretty clear-eyed. Um, or I try to be at least. Um, and I don't think it's at all. Um, it's at all a foregone conclusion that we're through the worst of this. Um, by any means. I think, you know, I think Trump, there's a fundamental dividing line in the world between people who think Trump is a cause and Trump was a symptom of what, what has happened on the right in the last, uh, in the, over the, is it really over the last four years or is it over the last 20 or 30 years? And I'm very much in the camp of Trump as, as symptom, not cause. Um, accelerant, yes. Coagulant, yes, but not cause. Um, you know, and I, 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 covered Pat Buchanan's campaigns in 1992 and 1996. And I, I can see the through line there. And um, so is Trump a, d- a particular kind of dangerous figure? Yes, he totally is. But the stuff that gave rise to Trump and made his takeover of the Republican Party so easy that hollowed out the Republican Party in the way that it did and allowed it to become what it is now, which is a party for, you know, white grievance and xenophobia and racism and uh, resentment, and then this kind of billionaire class on top of it, kind of profiting off all of that. It, you know, that and that has left the party so morally, intellectually bankrupt that, you know, uh, having listened to the Democratic impeachment managers yesterday, go to the text of the Constitution and explain, guys, you guys are, say, you're originalists. You've said for years, that's what you are, originalists, you're uh, strict constructionists of the Constitution. Here's an argument made for you to show you why this is in the Constitution, why we can have this trial and impeach this guy, even though he's out of office. And Republicans had, with no counter-argument, really, from the other side, Republicans still overwhelmingly voted in a totally morally, I would say, bankrupt and nihilistic way to try to shut this thing down so they just wouldn't have to face it, right? So what does the party believe now? I don't know. It's got, again, it's this bundle of, of of grievances. But on top of all of that, I think you look at that, Trump is now gone, but that, that still is there. You know, the thing that gave rise, as I said to Trump, so he could easily kind of conquer the party and make it worse over the last four years. So I worry that we are entering into a phase uh, of where political violence becomes much more routine in America um, and becomes much more common. And I've lived in countries where where political violence was more routine. As recently, I lived in London in the early 1990s and there were the IRA bombed yep. London with, with great frequency when I lived there. I mean, I often could not get on the train to go work every day because there were bomb threats or bombs that went off in that period. You know, so it's not like, you know, we've not been lucky in America if you it, I, we, one shouldn't set aside the long history of, of of white supremacy and political violence wrought on on African Americans over centuries in America but setting aside that for the just for the point of this discussion which is to say in terms of bombs going off and that those kinds of expression of political violence we've been lucky that those things have been pretty rare in recent American history but we could very well be headed back into a, a period that's my fear and I don't think I think there's reason to worry that that is where we're headed and I do think there is a big Fight that's now been that's now been uh, outlined for all of us, which is you know a fight that's not at all between Democrats and Republicans, but a fight that's between uh, people who believe in 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 our the in democracy and our constitutional republic, and people who are either supporters of or certainly tacitly acquiescent to uh, autocratic tendencies and and some of the stuff that and the and political violence on a regular scale. And I think that big fight is a big fight that's going to probably define the rest of my covering it, you know, and and having a voice in it and, and having a strong point of view about it. I think it could be the thing that kind of defines my political career, my political journalistic career for the rest of my life. I mean, that could be, that's, a, that's maybe a, that it, we may actually be getting to you know, Reagan talked about the long twilight struggle, right? Um, or whoever it was whose phrase that was about the twilight, yeah. long twilight struggle against communism. This is a new long twilight struggle You know that the country is going to have to go through. And it's not, I don't think the, the outcome of that is guaranteed either. Um, and I hope it's not the case that we're entering into a period where political violence becomes more routine. But again, I don't discount it at all as a, as a possible scenario. And that's one of the things January 6th did. I mean, if you're not aware of the possibility that that's where we're headed on after January 6th, you've got your head in the sand and, and I'm not like the kind of person who wants to go through any part of my life with my head in the sand. I think that's a dangerous place to have your head, you know?
3: (laughs) Ellen, you know, some of the value too of this trial is that we're, we are facing up to that. Um, What was, what was the term Jennifer? Uh, Watpa? What a time to be alive. Oh, Watpa. Yeah. What
2: a time to be alive. Here here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Coined (laughs) Um, by Liam Lee, uh, John. (laughs) <laughs> he's one of our. Uh, he's one of our camera guys. Yeah, watba. Oh,
1: yeah, it's Hamilton, right? What a look around. Look around. How lucky we are to be alive right now. This not. This is not the less. This is that's the optimistic version of that. How lucky we are to be alive right now. Watba is kind of the more neutral. Like, is it positive or negative? Hard to know. What a time. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well. John, Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us on political theater. Uh, as, like I said, the, I've I've been waiting to say that when the, when the circus comes to political theater, you know, instead of town, right? Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us on.
2: Yeah, thanks.